Hello everyone and welcome to Earth Niti. I'm Shekhar Tomar. We are very happy to have Professor Krishnamurti Subramaniam with us today. He's currently a professor of finance at Indian School of Business and is a leading expert on economic policy, banking and corporate governance. He recently came back to academia after serving as the chief economic advisor to the government of India between 2018 and 2021. Welcome to Earth Niti Subbu. My pleasure, Shekhar. How does it feel coming back to ISB? It feels like coming back home. This is home. I've always been a researcher at heart, and those three years were uh, essentially a sojourn out of home into something that uh, I really enjoyed. Uh, but deep thinking and uh, writing, you know, and which is what research is about, is what I uh, thoroughly enjoy. So it's uh, coming back home. So I'll connect it a little bit to your history, just understanding how did this transition happen? How did this opportunity come through? So the process started somewhere around, I think I would say August of 2018. If you recall, my predecessor Arvind had remitted office in July and in August the process started. That's how, uh, you know, things turned out. So I'll follow up on your tenure as the chief economic advisor. So you presented three surveys they all have a lot of information on the Indian economy. So I'm going to go through some of these surveys. Yeah, they have like treasure trove of insights and I've picked up a few and I want to discuss them with you. So in one of the survey chapters, you talk about inefficiency of small firms. So I'm, yeah. I'll just quote from the survey chapter, it's called Dwarfism. You say, the perception of small firms being significant job creators pervades because job destruction by small firms is ignored in this calculus. Small firms, and I emphasize, destroy jobs as much as they create. In contrast, large firms create permanent jobs in large numbers. Can you elaborate on this idea of dwarfism and why small firms hurt growth? No, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't put that characterization as small firms hurt growth. Um, remember the title of the chapter was dwarfism. And the idea there is, um, let me you know, use an example from nature. If you have a, a, a dwarf plant and let's say a very young sapling that can grow to be a giant tree, that young sapling that grows to be a giant tree, when it becomes a giant tree, it gives basically fruits, it gives shade, you know, all of the, the dwarf plant on the other hand actually takes up resources but at the, but does not you know provide the benefits that the young sapling that grows up to be you know a, a giant tree does and so nature therefore actually allocates resources to ensure efficiency prevails and and that's the idea that you know we we basically showed here that in india you know and this is a piece of evidence that is that is very important so there was this paper if you you would know um, in the quarterly journal of economics which actually showed how job creation by firms changes with with their age average age and across countries so if you take let's say the you know uh, an indian firm you know a 5 year old indian firm on average and a 5 year old american firm on average as well so you know this is think about it as a, as a race so make the starting point the same let's say when they are five year old they're creating hundred jobs both of them then track down actually saying over the next 30 years 35 years you know how many jobs do they create by the time the American firm is 40 year old that firm creates almost 700 plus jobs 
while the same 40-year-old Indian firm creates only 140 jobs. In other words, you know, in this 35-year journey, the Indian firm typically has only increased job creation by 40%, while the American firm has actually created seven times as much jobs or even more than that. I think we can give uh, uh, in so many anecdotal examples. You take an Infosys, you know, in the 1980s when it started, there may be a handful of people. But today, look at the number of firms that it has. Look at it, maybe a TCS or, or any of the other firms that might have been, you know, uh, might have been having a handful of employees. But it's those small, young firms that grew to be, you know, to be, to be giants. They are the ones that create jobs. In other words, the, you know, the mistake that we often make is basically look at it as a snapshot in time. Um, in contrast, you should need to look at this, you know, dynamically over time. And when you look at it dynamically over time, what, you know, if, if, you know you'll realize is that it is the small firm that grows to be big. Those are the ones that create jobs. Small firms that actually destroy as well. So if you, you know, have enough small firms destroying jobs, then you don't have enough job creation. So from the perspective of job creation in the economy, from the perspective of productivity in the economy, and therefore productivity and productivity matters for exports, productivity matters uh, to, to, to base, be able to compete with imports, you know, all of these, it is extremely important that this structure, the structural reasons why firms remain sort of dwarfs, which is basically they age, but they don't grow, that needs to be addressed. And that was the key point in this chapter. And one of the examples I'll give you, and you know, perverse incentives that have been created by policy have actually been instrumental in this phenomenon of dwarfism. To give you an example, uh, take, take labor laws that have prevailed. You know, once you become more than 100, em 100 employees, you have to start complying with, you know, a ton of regulations. Now, when a firm, let's say, reaches 95 employees, 96, 97 employees, then the promoter thinks that if I actually grow further, I become, let's say, 102, 103, I have to start complying with all these regulations. In contrast, let me do one thing, let me start another firm in my wife's name, or maybe by Bhatija's name, my Chacha's name, my Mama's name, or maybe even my driver or my maid's name. Um, and as a result, you don't reap economies of scale. And as economists, we actually, you know, appreciate that economies of scale are incredibly important for reducing average costs. And that's what enables productivity. When productivity gets enabled, you actually, these firms can compete better. They also create jobs in the process. So this structural reason is actually extremely important for India's Indian economy to actually gain the vibrancy that it deserves. So if I can just follow up on it. So you mentioned labor law, so mm -hmm. we would see this impact more in the manufacturing sector yes. than probably in the services sector. Okay. But do we have like dwarfs even in the services sector? I think that's, that is... Uh, it's a good question. I am not aware of research in the Indian context that has actually looked at this. My sense is anecdotally, and I think I am, I will I'll admit that I'm speculating a little bit here just based on anecdotal evidence, but it's a question that actually should be studied more carefully. My sense would be that the phenomenon should be there, you know, in, 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 in the service sector as well, because, you know, while manufacturing oftentimes is more capital intensive, you know, services actually is more labor intensive. And so at the very least, therefore, these labor laws should bite there, uh, you know, equally. And so I would therefore you know think that the the dwarfism phenomenon prevails equally in um, you know in services too i mean you really brought forward this point through this chapter and i think it was a really important discussion that we 
need to have yes but what's the policy outcome for it like what can we do about it no there's already been things that have been done right you know and this chapter actually had a significant influence on the policy changes that happened as part of the atmanirbhar bharat as have and i that's been one of my sort of you know enormous sources of satisfaction that the, each of the three surveys that i wrote actually each one of them had a telling impact on you know on 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 policy changes and that's something so in this particular case you know if you look at the pli scheme the pli scheme is conditioned on growth of the firm um it is not based just on actually you know democratizing the taxpayers okay so i'll take a step back here because i think this scheme is interesting but if you can tell us this timeline you said yeah. there are dwarfs we keep giving them benefits mm -hmm. even if they survive for 30 years right but based on the scheme what changed you don't want to give them benefit for their whole lifetime right so no i think the the, the by the way the, for for the viewers that are not um, familiar pli is basically the production linked incentive scheme and as in the name itself it suggests that if you continue to grow then you know you will basically enjoy the subsidies that you know from the taxpayers money as i mentioned the problem that that we had the structural problem was that the taxpayers money was going into dwarfs firms that were aging but were not growing and as a result you basically had inefficiencies so you know one way of tackling this inefficiency was to basically incentivize growth of firms as i said earlier as well firms young firms that grow are the ones that basically are more productive create jobs and so this scheme was essentially a way of incentivizing growth and thereby you know addressing some of the perverse incentives that create the dwarfism second thing that actually it was done was the labor law legislation has been changed um and there um, you know one of the key parts is raising the threshold from 100 to 300 you know on the uh, on 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 some of the industrial action uh, aspects um and i think on dismissal as well the third thing that was done was to change the msme definitions the msme definitions were were so restrictive that actually you know even with very little a little bit of growth for a couple of years you would basically hit the hit that you know threshold from when perverse incentives would start you know kicking in and therefore the msme definitions have been changed to ensure that firms can continue to grow much so in other words the ceiling has been laid you know raised much much more so these three things were actually intended you know direct to directly address this phenomenon of of dwarfism in the indian economy so it's basically Basically, incentivizing MSMEs to become something bigger, and exactly. you're betting on those who are more efficient. Exactly. And the last point, actually, I would mention is that you know it also behooves the promoter, you know, um, to think for himself or herself that the maximum benefit that comes from the little bit of visionary thinking not the myopic thinking of here and now what is the money i'm going to make um, by basically starting another firm let's say you know in your wife's or bhatija's or chacha's name if you you know promoters have a little bit of a more long run vision so you know i think the point therefore was to really highlight that a promoter actually that grows his or her firm reaps economies of scale becomes more productive therefore can compete with imports better can you know do exports more as well create jobs actually and you know support so many families and most importantly help himself as well he becomes richer too that's the point that was actually really addressed in this chapter so i'll go a bit to the macro side of the economy we already discussed the micro part so in one of your chapters you also talk about the bias of credit rating agencies and i think that yeah. was another <laughs> highlight of the chapter so i'll again quote from the chapter but just to give the context uh, 
It's after 2019 when Moody's downgraded the Indian economy from stable to negative outlook. And you mentioned never in the history of sovereign credit ratings has the fifth largest economy in the world been rated as the lowest rung of the investment grade, BBB minus. Reflecting the economic size and thereby the ability to repay the debt, the fifth largest economy has predominantly been rated AAA. China and India are the only exceptions to this rule. China was A minus in 2005 and India is triple B minus. What explains this bias? You did mention the, 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 the downgrade, but the context actually to this chapter was uh, much wider. Um, having observed myself, you know, as financial economists, we, we, we see this. And, you know, uh, ratings, default, these are things that we, you know, sort of teach our students uh, very often. Um, so if you think about, you know, the uh, uh, default itself, it is affected by two things, which is the ability to repay and the willingness to repay, right? That's theoretically, there is nothing else that actually, or conceptually, nothing else matters for default, which is the ability to repay and the willingness to repay. Now, if you look at willingness to repay, India, you know, in its history has never ever defaulted on its obligations. You know, we've had now Russia actually defaulting. There have been Latin American countries that have defaulted, you know, many, many times. But India as an emerging economy has never defaulted. Even at the lowest point in India's economy in 1991, when we were actually going through such a large balance of payments crisis, we actually shipped gold to the Bank of England and to the Bank of Japan to actually honor our obligations, right? So, the, the, the India's, you know, willingness to repay is gold standard. No questions can be asked because, you know, historically, uh, you know, we've never defaulted. And that's, it is, it is, and this, it's important for me to highlight that this is, this decision to default is not an economic decision for India. It is basically, a, you know, there is bilateral consensus that it is more a spiritual, philosophical, you know, uh, a, a commitment that we will not default on, on our obligations. So that's the first point that our, that our willingness to repay is gold standard. What about the ability to repay? If you look at the ability to repay, you know, our foreign currency obligations are actually minuscule, you know, compared to compared to other, other, other countries, right? You know, the sovereign, of course, has never gone and borrowed, you know, in... in yeah, most of our debt is domestic. In fact, um, and even those, the, the, only the debt that comes from multilateral agencies is foreign currency denominated, but the Indian sovereign has never gone and borrowed from, from markets, the sovereign bond markets actually in foreign currency. So, where is the question of the Indian sovereign defaulting? So, if your ability to repay is actually, you know, close to gold standard, because all your obligations are in rupee terms, and if your willingness to repay is also gold standard, then what, you know, in the world can justify this, uh, you know, this triple B uh, uh, minus rating? Um, you know, conceptually, I actually just don't see it. That's the larger context. The second, you know, key aspect that is, you know, and, and here I'd looked at, unlike in the corporate bond ratings, right, where there is a very strong correlation between actually the fundamentals and the default, you know, default performance. If I mean, if you take pick up S&P ratings or Moody's ratings, you go and correlate it, you'll find a very strong correlation. In contrast, with sovereign, you know, ratings, actually, that correlation is very, very tenuous, which actually tells me that clearly the model that is being used to actually arrive at these ratings itself is actually quite questionable. 
and why is it questionable because these the model basically you know i think is a is an empirical model um, that was you know that has not been changed much after the global financial crisis after the global financial crisis you've had countries that actually were supposed to be gold standard that have gone and actually defaulted you know on the um, on 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 their obligations and yet there has basically maybe been a, a, a marginal tweak here a marginal tweak there you know on a model that i think is fundamentally not capturing some of the key aspects as i just explain the willingness to repay or the ability to repay and the third point which is why does the size of the economy matter the size of the economy matters because it is basically you know if if you're looking at let's say debt to gdp right as the the size of the economy the denominator is the gdp which is why and that affects let's say the ability to repay and there's the very first chart that i showed you which actually tells the story as loud you know as a thousand words that the fifth largest economy has never ever been so you know lowly rated um when the fifth largest economy has been a non asian economy or you know a western power that fifth largest economy has always been a triple a you know maybe at worst maybe a double a, a AA. it's only when it's an asian economy actually that a, a china or now an india and you know at least china was rated as as an a india is rated as a as a, as a triple b and i think anyways i've actually written on on other aspects about how the western perspective often times on india is actually very very colored in in different ways so this so, is is a symptom symptom of this of this problem so just following on this like how costly is this bias for a country like india so and and that's a that's a good question because that's something we examined very carefully in the second half of this chapter by correlating it with stock market bond market you know foreign exchange market responses turns out that the market is actually far smarter than the rating agencies are you know the market actually factors this the fact that the ratings are not reflecting the fundamentals much better than the rating agencies you know in other words what i'm actually you know uh, articulating conceptually the market in its own way is capturing very well um, you know that the indian rating does not you know reflect its fundamentals but here's the the reason why this is important is that there is a discontinuity you know in in markets you know between investment grade versus non investment grade so you know why because if you if the race sovereign rating were not investment grade then a lot of portfolio firms that you know basically put their money in 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 a in a country cannot you know they'll have to withdraw so this is basically like some pension fund they are obligated to only exactly. invest in only invest in. so so the only you know concern and and which con the concern is now of course you know has 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 gone away but at the time when we wrote the chapter amidst the covid pandemic where every country had to spend uh, you know and we basically had to you know uh, point out that the rating agencies are you know the rating is not reflecting our fundamentals so to basically redouble the message to the markets that you know this is just this is not reflecting our fundamentals so don't react you know which anyway they were not um, and we wanted to warn on that count um, so i think that discontinuity is what was the primary you know concern that i wanted to avoid and therefore put this chapter out um, very clear and i think you know i and i've engaged with the rating agencies i'm i can tell you i'm very disappointed you know with in the in their conceptual understanding of these things they they talk a good talk but i think the you know when you when you dig deeper and ask them about actually these the, the models and you know, often times i think the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing but the cost can still be significantly high because we don't get these portfolio investment which should ideally land up in india and lead to more investment no i'm not no i'm, I'm I don't don't you know i think that's that's a misinterpretation um as i said we are actually investment grade 
you know if we if we if we basically were downgraded below the investment grade then there would be a discontinuity you know foreign inflows basically portfolio inflows you know would would stop which did not happen you know and now of course there's been a revision as well you know a positive revision in rating so that concern actually which was material at the time when the chapter was written is not material anymore so i think you know the bottom line what i want to say is that the market and investors recognize very clearly that the sovereign rating agencies are wrong in their assessment of india's fundamentals as reflected in the rating in that sovereign rating so just building on this further like you were ca during one of the most extraordinary times which is covid so what explains the fiscal policy of the government during this time and if i may add to it we had one of the most stringent lockdowns also probably one of the strongest impact of covid itself but our fiscal expenditure the additional fiscal expenditure has been below average among the emerging market economies do you think this bias of rating agencies and some fear of rating agencies were at the back of the mind no. when the fiscal policy was decided no, by the government no 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 i i i'm i'm going to be emphatic in in basically saying that it was not it was actually and let me start off by mentioning how india now singularly stands out you know for the macro fundamentals that if you compare with you know with with advanced economies no i'm fiscally conservative but i want to understand I, what I, was I want to explain making. to you. I want to yeah. explain to you why actually, you know, in in if in fact fiscal conservatism, as long as it is it is driven by good economic principles, I think it's fine. But you know, fiscal conservatism or fiscal aggress aggressiveness actually based on ideology. I think ideology in any case actually should be driven by fundamentals. I have a problem with basically just economic ideologies that are not driven well by good uh, good economic arguments or good data. And and that's the that's that's the point I I want to explain here. But let me first start out by by by. Uh, um mentioning that if you look at india's fundamentals you know take any of the macro statistics look at inflation look at current account deficit look at basically the you know the overall fiscal deficit itself and look at the currency depreciation etc Turkey, for instance, now is actually at 70%, 80% inflation, and it's staring at maybe 100% plus inflation. Argentina is at 60% inflation. Brazil is basically in double digits inflation. India, on the other hand, actually is you know last print was was 7%, which is just 4% greater than the historical average. Advanced economies are 400% higher than the historical average. Why? And this is where it actually comes to the. India you know when we were go when we when the covid was happening we identified very clearly that covid was not just a demand side phenomenon it was also a supply side phenomenon point number 1 which means that if you basically only do demand side measures the keynesian you know pump priming or money printing that basically that all advanced economies did and all emerging economies copy pasted that the advanced economies on um, and which is why our fiscal spend was actually lower than that of the 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 uh, you know emerging economies and i'll explain why that if you suppose you have just take sort of econ 101 demand and supply you know no, nothing is done suppose laissez faire right you know what would happen is there would be a shrink in demand there would be a shrink in supply as well so in, inflation would not be a problem but output would you know decline significantly so gdp growth would actually be 
very materially impacted, but you know would not be would not sort of uh, uh, so it, there'll be a huge decline in, in GDP growth. Now, what is it that the advanced economies and the emerging economies that mimic the advanced you know advanced economies did was they basically did only revenue spending, fiscal and so push demand backside back, you know back up not as much as it would have been without COVID, but they were able to get get back. Um, India also did, and I'll come to that, but did nothing on supply. So what do you have? If you have a shrink in supply, demand coming back close to almost or maybe maybe at eight, seven, eight percent lower than let's say pre-COVID, then you have runaway inflation. And I think you don't need actually, you know, even a you know a PhD trained economist to tell you this. An undergrad student actually would tell you that if you basically don't work on supply, you just push demand back up, you know, you'll have prices going up. What, what you need a PhD for is actually a priori, you know, when the crisis was happening to identify that this is both a demand side and a supply side phenomenon. And therefore, the optimal policy response has to be one that actually is prudent on the demand side, you know, maximize the bang for the buck and also, you know, implement supply side measures. India did that on the demand side. And actually, even though if you look at the actual numbers, you know, it looks like we may have spent less, but the impact was as good because one, we did a lot of in-kind, you know, transfers. For instance, 800 million people got free food. If you look at the other countries, they don't have the kind of PDS public distribution system that we have. And therefore, they had to give cash transfers for people to basically for so their... So in a way, it was more targeted in terms of what you're spending on. Yes. And, and, and let me, you know, there are a few other elements actually to make sure because there's this, this criticism that actually is leveled and I think, you know, unfairly leveled because people have not understood the nuances that well. So, you know, because we have a very robust PDS system and the direct benefit transfers as well, we gave 800 million people free food. Um, that free food included cereals and pulses and, and, and LPG as well. We also gave cash transfers, but cash transfers only to the vulnerable, to widows, actually senior citizens. The PM Kisan basically was, was, was increased. So that's what that was the cash transfer part. And a big part of what we did was we actually gave loans through the financial sector, but overlaid with guarantees from the FISC. And this basically did two things. One, it actually, you know, utilizes the leverage that the financial sector has. If, if the, you know, FISC basically has to give 100 rupees, the entire spending is 100. But if you just give a guarantee, your cost, which is not immediate, cost would basically be two, three years later when the economy is doing much better, maybe three rupees, four rupees or five rupees. As a result, by using leverage, you're able to do much more. Second, the financial sector has information at the level of the borrower or the individual that the FISC never will have. And it is also incentive compatible in the way we economists talk about that with a guarantee, the financial sector is not worried about, about losing the money. So those that are constrained, you know, credit constrained or liquidity constrained, or maybe both would have normally not gotten the credit, but with the guarantee, the financial sector is willing to actually give that loan. Those who are only liquidity constrained will repay back because they are, you know, they are worried about their, their credit rating getting impacted. It's only those that are credit and liquidity constrained that will default. When they default, what happens? Actually, the guarantee comes in. So it's a quasi-transfer, but a quasi-cash transfer to those that are genuinely you know, distressed because they are facing credit risk and liquidity risk as well. And the others basically don't get that transfer. India is one of the few countries where the, these credit guarantees were yes. larger than the fiscal spending. Correct. And in fact, the guarantees were not only to MSMEs, small firms, but also to the urban 
urban poor through you know by on lending through through my through MFIs and take a look you know the recent the core sector output actually that has come 18 percent increase I think you know the fact that we basically got the demand side measures you know uh, all uh, uh, spot on by using these leverage you know some deep thinking on this I think is is testimony to the fact that India's policy was singularly you know positive compared to that of advanced economies they just printed money like there was no tomorrow and that's the consequence of that is the runaway inflation that we that they are suffering now in order to actually fight that inflation they're actually trying to raise rates which will create a, a recession in the economy you know I mean advanced economies and in the you know emerging economies as well while India will grow at seven percent plus so which actually tells you I think bottom line therefore that it was not you know worry of credit rating agencies but a more fundamental identification of the problem the clarity of thought number one to be able to identify a priori and the courage of conviction to actually be different from the advanced economies as well because we had thought through and we said you know we knew we were actually right and therefore we went, went ahead with that courage of conviction. Yeah but we are punished not only for our own mistake but someone else's mistake as well and I'm just following on this stagflation issue mm -hmm. now. So Fed printed money like there's no tomorrow right. and it's coming to bite them back Yeah, and there is a high likelihood that will probably hit a recession. Globally, now, globally, globally India, speaking, India, India will not. Globally speaking, so I want to understand like what are your thoughts and I know it's a very wide uh, question but how good are Indian fundamentals to withstand this uh, uh, pretty likely global yeah. crisis? So I think see this is where um, you know uh, uh, one needs to understand why we um, amidst the COVID pandemic why did we implement the Atmanirbha Bharat policy? So after the global financial crisis itself the heyday of globalization has reversed. Now while some of the smaller countries, smaller economies don't have the advantage of a very large consumer base, a very large labor supply, India has that advantage. Given the risks you know from the reversal of some of the globalization and also you know some of the phenomena that we saw during COVID there are risks and actually you know by utilizing India's strengths of you know of a large consumer base I think you know uh, India can actually become less immune I'm not saying that we will ever become you know fully immune in a globalized economy but you know the move towards actually utilizing our strengths of a large consumer base was where the Atmanirbha Bharat policy actually is directed at. Second, if you look at why do we care in effectively about, you know, about let's say it's slackflation or recession in the global economy, primarily because it affects actually the, you know, it, it, it affects our exports. I mean it's, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand actually if you look at as a proportion of global exports, our uh, proportion is so less, about 2% and that's why the double-edged sword, that's the, that's the not so good thing. But the good thing then is that you know even in a you know in a sort of a, a, an economy global economy where the demand is not growing as much we can still grow enough actually as we economists call at the intrinsic margin right even though the extrinsic margin which is you know the global demand actually let's say does not grow enough just by growing from two percent to maybe five percent or, or or beyond actually we can grow our exports so by one enabling more you know of our output to come from domestic you know the, our harnessing our strengths and the fact 
fact that we are at such a low base on the as a proportion of global exports that even you know when the extrinsic margin is not favorable we can still grow through the intrinsic margin i think that's why we actually i don't think india will be impacted as much and as i said bottom line 7% plus growth india will be the largest in the fastest growing economy in the world not just this year but i think this decade as well because but just to set benchmark like relative to the gfc mm-hmm. which is 2008 we are more integrated in the international economy now than what we were like 12 13 years ago so that mm-hmm. combined with the current uh, fundamental factors of the economy you think the shock would be something similar no, uh, same let, persistence so, so let me explain right you know what is so what is gdp gdp is basically consumption plus investment plus you know government spending plus net exports right um consumption that's domestic okay you know um, yes maybe a second order effect through sentiment but the first order effect is basically just the demand and there is you know sort of demand seems to be coming back so that c is basically or y is equal to c plus i plus g plus x minus m you know c is not as impa- impacted by by global factors investment you know the uh, um, focus has been on you know encouraging private investment if you look at the the dual balance sheet problem where actually our both our corporates and our banks were excessively leveraged that is behind us you know we have actually you know um, uh, so f- so private investment is waiting to come back um, and public investment which actually we know very well has a crowding in effect also will enable private investment so that's not something which will be as impacted it will be impacted more than consumption but will not be as impacted by the global factors government spending of course is endogenous in other words that's something the government's choosing and it's spending on on infrastructure and that's been a big change in the fiscal policy that has happened and uh, relatively we are stronger there we are much much stronger actually because our policy you know emphasis is different um that leaves only the exports and imports um i think the exports dimension is the one that would get impacted but as i just said actually the you know um given that we are at such low levels we still can grow even in this environment that is why uh, you know based on on this careful analysis i'm saying that the impact of the global factors on the indian economy you know if you think it through in this systematic manner you will be able to see that the, i think there's t- far too much you know air being blown on on the global economy having you know, too much impact on 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 the indian economy so i'll go a little bit back uh, and i'm trying to understand the slowdown which india saw in the last uh, uh, few years even before the covid mm-hmm. and there you have like a very important paper on uh, bank cleanup yep. not accompanied at the same time by provisioning for uh, bad loans or capital infusion if you yeah. may say yeah. so why is that a problem and the asset quality review that rbi initiated in 2015 yeah. do you think that was one of the reasons that we saw slight slowdown in the indian economy in fact not just the paper but there are you know in the economic surveys itself in the 2019-20 economic survey um the state of the economy chapter had a had a you know the, it was in two sections one was an assessment of the economy then but also another section on the slowdown in the economy where there was rigorous analysis done for why is it, what was the reason for the slowdown also in the 2020-21 economic survey I actually wrote a chapter based on this chapter so based on this paper itself which was regulatory forbearance actually um it's for regulatory forbearance is emergency medicine not staple diet so you know viewers can refer to both those both of those as well so let me focus primarily first on the you know on the uh, uh, on the slowdown as the way we explained in the 
2020 economic survey, there's a lot of research in financial economics that highlights that when problems start from the financial sector, the overhang of that is much, much larger than when the problems start in the real sector. You know, they, one can give a lot of examples just, just for concreteness. If you take the global financial crisis versus the COVID crisis, for instance, during COVID, the year of COVID, the global economy shrunk by about four and a half percent. Next year, it was back. You know, of course, now because of the excessive policies and the bad policies, there is going to be an impact. But it is not because of the, you know, of the shock per se. If better policies were done by the advanced economies, actually, we would have gotten out and, you know, we would not have had to have a global recession. But the example being... When the problem starts in the real sector, overhang, overhang is much lower. In contrast, take the global financial crisis. You know, after the Lehman and, and you know, Beer Stern failures, then you had actually a, a full-blown sovereign, you know, uh, default crisis as well in the, in the European economies. And that actually is illustrative of the kind of overhang. But, you know, these anecdotal examples aside, there's a lot of research, you know, Mia and Su Atif Mia and Amir Sufi, for instance, you know, have a paper, IMF has also written on this, that the overhang from problems that start in the financial sector are far, far longer. And that is why I actually put a lot of blame for the slowdown on the crony lending that happened. Now, how does this overhang manifest? Overhang manifests, which is that banks, you know, when they, when they are seeing bad loans, their first incentive is to actually evergreen them. And it, of course, it is the job of the regulator to make sure that, that such evergreening does not happen, you know, and, and that's part of actually what we show in the chapter that did not happen. The forbearance continued for seven years. So this is like... After, let's say, 2009 to 2014. 2009 to 2013 is when the, the excessive lending and crony lending happened. So because loans, especially corporate loans, are about five years in maturity, you know, only when the loans are coming back for repayment, that is when you know whether the loan is doing well or not. Only, I mean, I, ideally you should be monitoring the loan very, very, you know, uh, periodically, but that did, that did not happen. So uh, then banks evergreen. You know, this is something that the regulator should have picked and made sure that the evergreening does not happen. And it, it did not happen. After evergreening, what banks basically then do is, you know, they end up giving giving credit to these same, you know, to the to these uh, zombies. Um, and that is inefficient as well. The regulatory forbearance itself, actually, that was started during the global financial crisis continued for seven years. You know, seven years, you basically not just, it was it was start, stopped after seven years. And that is why the title of that chapter, which was saying that, you know, regulatory forbearance is emergency medicine. You don't go and eat emergency medicine, actually, that you're, when you're sick, you eat it for seven years. And of course, if you eat emergency medicine for seven years, the overhang of that, it's going to be bad health. And and what happened was that the dual balance sheet problem, where actually a corporate, lot of the corporate, especially a lot of the crony promoters who actually got these crony loans, they ended up, you know, over over leveraging. Banks became significantly over leveraged. When banks became significantly over leveraged, initially they hid, and then you know the 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 as they say the shit hit the roof, right? Um, all all of this came out. Um, NPAs were recognized, and because there was a lot of crony lending, obviously action had to be taken against those people who actually you know sort of contributed to this crony lending. That led to then risk aversion among the banks. If you look at the credit itself, you know. During the 2009 to 2014 period, 
or, or even 2004 to 2014 period, credit growth was in excess of 20 odd percent. Um, in contrast, after 2014 to 2019 or so, if you are, you know, take credit growth has been actually about 7, 8 percent. Um, and we know very well that credit growth contributes to, you know, to, to, to economic growth. So if you're having credit growth of basically 7, 8 percent, obviously it'll have an impact on, and how did that impact show up? It showed up in investment. Investment declined significantly. And then also, as, as I've shown in the 2018-19 economic survey, the virtuous cycle. When private investment slows down, there are cascading effects then on growth, thereby on consumption, and all the other effects actually start manifesting. Because you know, when we think about an economy, you know, we have to think about it in a dynamic fashion, not in a static way. Where there are several cascading effects. That was what basically led to this led to the and slowdown. If you can say a bit more about the asset quality review yes, that exacerbated the problem exacerbated the problem because um, you know the the aqr actually was well intended but when the aqr is done you know it has to actually go and identify all the bad assets it really because it is a asset quality review now if suppose the uh, uh, asset quality review does not identify all the you know all all the all the good uh, all, all the all the bad assets then it exacerbates the problem and that is what so in other words there was nothing wrong with the intent of the aqr itself but it isn't the execution which is something where actually a broader point i've always been you know sort of worried about the quality of banking supervision that we have uh, in this country identification of bad assets in time um, you know and 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 ma making sure that they are provisioned properly provisioning was not good either actually for a long while banks didn't provision and the regulator didn't push on on this aspect as well so a lot of the blame for you know in uh, for for exacerbating what started out as basically crony lending lies at the door of the banking sector regulator itself and aqr you know exacerbated that problem of course so my last question is about the hitting the five trillion dollar mark. When do you think India can hit it? So, firstly, Shekhar, I think it's important to understand the you know the the mindset behind setting this goal. Um, as it happens with with our own personal goals or corporate goals as well. There's certain focus that comes in, you know, energy gets directed into, you know, into achieving that goal. And that brings a certain clarity of thought and thereby clarity of action as well, uh, which has happened uh, you know, in, in, in India's case uh, by setting that target of a $5 trillion economy. If you look at, you know, the, the policy changes that... That have, that have happened in the emphasis on the virtuous cycle, you know, starting from private investment and there's been an emphasis, therefore, on private investment. If you see uh, the budget speeches that have, you know, made by the, by the finance minister, many times she's mentioned about the virtuous cycle and the importance of private investment. So that's one aspect. Second, you know, the emphasis on infrastructure and public, uh, you know, uh, um, public good creation by the sovereign. Um, we know very well that uh, infrastructure, you know, has the has a force multiplier effect by by crowding in private investment. So that's a second key change that has happened. And at the same time, the the reforms that have been done, the Atmanirbhar Bharat policy that we talked about, many of the reforms that have been done as part of that to, to enable the ease of doing business. Because uh, when you look at emerging economies, in contrast to advanced economies, Economies, a lot of the, you know, a lot of what holds back the economy is on the supply side.
and and removing some of the frictions from the supply side is where reforms have to basically focus on of course um, and i think this is a no brainer that you know covid has impacted goals the economic goals of every country including india um, it's a once in a century pandemic um, which required economic restrictions and and you know earlier if you you had mentioned about the the stringent lockdown that we that we had you know i would just want to mention to the viewers that in that we know that you we were, you were talking about the first wave and we showed in the economic survey very clearly again using very careful evidence that it saved a lot of lives and that has helped us come back you know uh, in the uh, in, in terms of the economic you know goals so i think that going forward as imf has already you know put out its projection by uh, 2027 i think india should be in a position to actually achieve that target um, but i think that you know uh, there it if if we uh, see some of the uncertainty due to due to the ukraine war you know uh, and some of the global you know uh, uh, economic conditions actually those that uncertainty settling down then i think the growth can actually be faster and we might be able to achieve the goal you know uh, uh, e- earlier as well i think that then just uh, uh, leaves me to highlight that oftentimes we focus on the impact of averages you know the average um, growth rate etc but often you know i think the the second moment as we economists call which is uncertainty has a much larger impact on consumption and even more on 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 investment and i therefore uh, um i i sincerely hope that the uh, cons- that 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 the uncertainty settles down and i think here uh, the role of policy cannot be underestimated i think advanced economies you know may want to look at india um, the way we you know we we implemented policy during covid by implementing not only demand side but also supply side measures so just working on demand as it was during covid without working on supply will mean that the impact on inflation will be there but there'll be a larger impact on output as well in contrast if actually the advanced economies focus on supply side side problems as well i think that then can ensure that the uh, loss in output actually is much is minimized is significantly lower compared to just focusing on demand and i think here you know what india did can possibly be a very good uh, you know case study for for advanced economies to learn from thank you subbu it's always a pleasure speaking to you my pleasure